All right, Daniel chapter 5. Now I'm going to do my best to give you a recap because this uh, message today is part two of a message that I began last week in chapter 5. Uh, we began uh, chapter 5 in verse 1 uh, reading about a guy named Belshazzar. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine uh, in the presence uh, of the thousand. And Belshazzar, you're like, well, wait a minute, where, who is this guy? Because he, up until this point, we, we haven't read about this guy. Well, what we need to know is that at the conclusion of chapter 4, basically uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the, the, the king that we've been reading about up until this point, the king over Babylon, um, he, through a, a, a long providential road, has ultimately surrendered his life uh, to the Lord. It would fully appear in, in the, the, the events of chapter 4. And, uh, and so he, he gets saved, and, and somewhere after that he departs, he dies, he goes to meet the Lord, which is our ultimate destination for all of us. And so Nebuchadnezzar has, has left the scene, he's left the building, uh, as it were, and uh, after he departed from the throne, there was all sorts of intrigue, all sorts of infighting. 23 years have transpired between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And during that time, we've had, you know, guys ascend to the throne uh, and then get killed, and other guys ascend to the throne and then die natural causes, and then another guy ascend to the throne and get killed. And uh, so ultimately what has happened is that right now a guy by the name of Nabonidus is now uh, the ruler of Babylon. But he's sort of, uh, you know, left the scene and basically has other things that are keeping him occupied, whether it's him waging war. Some speculate he's waging war with the Medo-Persian army right now. Others are saying he's a guy that was, had a lot of hobbies and he basically was more interested in the hobbies than he was in being king. Uh, whatever it was, Nabonidus turned over, uh, passed on uh, the, the kingdom to his son, who is Belshazzar. And Belshazzar is now the co-regent with him. Now, all of this was prophesied by Jeremiah. Jeremiah said that God would give Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, then to his son, and then to his son's son. Obviously, Daniel had prophesied as well to Nebuchadnezzar, look, this, there is an after you. There is, there is an after you coming. But Jeremiah prophesied, hey, God's going to give the kingdom to Nebuchadnezzar, then to his son, then to his son's son. And so all that has transpired. Uh, and uh, ultimately, you know, the kingdom is going to pass on to someone else. And so as the story opens up in chapter 5, that someone else has now surrounded the city. Babylon, a, a, a city with a 15-square-mile wall, uh, fortified, uh, keeping all their enemies out. It was such a powerful wall, such a monumentous structure. They, they were saying that uh, four chariots could ride abreast of one another around the top of the wall. It had multiple guard towers that towered 100 feet above the 100-foot wall. It was a very impressive structure. So their enemies couldn't get in. Uh, common tactic of enemies of this day when there was a fortified city is they'd just surround them and they'd starve them out. Well, Babylon had like 20-year food supply within it, and it had a limitless water supply, which would ultimately prove to be their undoing because they had the Euphrates River run right through the middle of the city, and they actually had this ingenious thing where they'd build the walls around the river, and they put these gates down to, to close off even the river. 
And ultimately what the Medo-Persians do, this is a spoiler alert, but they end up throwing down, uh, over, over conquering um, uh, Babylon tonight uh, here in chapter 5. And the way they did it was they diverted the water from the Euphrates River temporarily. It ran out all into the fields. The river went down in the area of the gates, and then they were able to crawl underneath the gates. The whole army came in, and, and they would, would kill uh, Belshazzar before anybody even knew they were there, take the city uh, that night night. That's, that's what's going to happen to them. But for right now, Belshazzar is large and in charge, and he's proud, and he's arrogant, and he's throwing this party because he's thumbing his nose at God, and he's thumbing his nose at the Medo-Persians. I don't really care that you're out there. Do I look like I care? I'm getting, I'm getting hammered here. I'm throwing a kegger. It's all good, and I don't care about you. And, uh, and, and in the process, he gets all of the implements, the, the, the vessels from uh, the, 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 the tabernacle, the vessels that were taken um, from when they when they uh, when they took over Judah uh, and conquered Judah, they took all of those vessels uh, out of the house of God. These holy vessels, and, and so Nebuchadnezzar, or rather um, Belshazzar, uses this opportunity not only to thumb his nose at all of his enemies, but he takes these vessels, which, which are symbolic of God's son. I mean, this is about as, as, as blasphemous as you can get, taking these, these sacred vessels, symbolizing God's son, and he uses them to, to just get hammered and to worship his gods with it. And so, so this is a great act of rebellion, a great act uh, of defiance. And what we saw last week was that we see this in the world in which we live right now. People have such incredible defiance of God and are so blasphemous in their actions. And, and the things that we see, they make your blood boil. They make you upset. That Brenda won't even watch the news with me anymore because I scream at the television set. I'm yelling, you know, at the things that I see, you know, and, and I get upset I don't know, am I alone? Do you ever get upset with the crazy stuff that you see? And, uh, and what we talked about last week is you're normal when you get upset like that. Because I take great comfort to the fact that I look at the disciples and they struggled with the same thing. You know, Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, they go to, to seize Jesus. Peter pulls out a sword and hacks off Malchus's ear. You know, the servant of the most high, uh, the, the, rather the priest, uh, the high priest and um, part of the lynch mob going to get Jesus and Peter's like, no, we're fighting here. And he cuts the guy's ear off. And Jesus, in the process, he's like, Peter, put your sword away. Dude, you're making work for me here kind of thing. Puts the ear back on the guy. We're not about that kind of thing. Later on, we see, uh, or before that, we see um, James and John, uh, who were called the sons of thunder. And I think probably from this occasion, this is where they earned the nickname, but they're going into the, the cities uh, in the region around Samaria, and, the, and Jesus wants to go into one of the cities and the city closes off. They won't let him in. And so James and John, they're like, they say to Jesus, well, do you want us to call down, uh, call down fire on these guys? And, and uh, Jesus tells them, look, you don't, you don't know of what kind of spirit you are. That's, <coughs> that's not what we're, about. <laughs> excuse me, that's not what we're about. Jesus, you know, talking to, to these guys saying, uh, that's, that's not the right response. So my first profound point from last week that we're going to be building on, um, just that haters are going to hate. Profound, I know. But, you know, people are uh, oppositional to the Lord. 
And, and so we, we saw that men used force in the garden to attempt to suppress Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. We see that they're still using force today to suppress Jesus Christ. I mean, the city of San Diego just shut down uh, a home Bible study. It basically is passed an ordinance. No home Bible studies are allowed because of the, the traffic that it creates in, in neighbors. You throw a Tupperware party. You can have Monday night football party. But if, if you throw a home Bible study in San Diego and they find out about it, they're going to shut you down. So, I mean, nothing, nothing changes. We still see the, 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 you know, entities exerting power and force trying to suppress Jesus Christ. Uh, saw it 2,000 years ago. We see it now. Um, people closed off the city of Samaria to Jesus 2,000 years ago. And we see schools being closed off to him now. We see governments being closed off to him now. We see whole entities closing off to Jesus Christ. We see a lawsuit right now uh, trying to get Arlington National Cemetery to remove all the crosses on, on all of the graves at Arlington. Um, you know, and, and that whole thing, just trying to close it off to Jesus. And, and so, you know, haters are going to hate. It happens. That's the world we live in. We see Belshazzar. He's, he's blaspheming God by taking these sacred vessels uh, and worshiping his own gods with them. We see in our day and age, you know, a professor blaspheming the name of God, taking the name of Jesus Christ, demanding his students to stomp on the name of Jesus Christ. When one of his students refused, he kicked him out of his class. And so haters are going to hate. We're going to see this. We see it. And the temptation is to lash out. And, and, and yet we're exhorted not to. Our, our second point last week was that, listen, inside every man there lies a conscience. You may want to react and respond and, and to, 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 you know, come against those that are coming against Christianity. No, we need to trust that God's going to do his work through their conscience. What we saw in Belshazzar's life, the beginning of chapter five, is that here's a man who is, is bound to determine what he's going to do, and he won't admit that, that there's, there's something troubling him, but what happens when God shows up, God always shows up, God shows up in his life, and you see this hand writing on the wall opposite the lampstand. Bel Belshazzar's response is to freak out. And we, we explored that last week. Why did he freak out? Why did he automatically know in his heart of hearts that it was bad news? Why didn't he just assume that it was good news? Because he had a prohibitive conscience? Well, no, because he had a conscience. He was, you know, just convicted within himself. And what we talked about last week is this idea that people in the world, whether they will admit it or not, because God has written his law on the hearts of men, they know the difference within themselves between right and wrong. And God will do a work in the conscience of people. And so we don't have to react. We don't have to, you know, when we see people hating, when we see people blaspheming, we can trust God knowing that he's working in their heart, whether that person will admit it or not. And certainly we see this in Belshazzar's life. God's working on him and, and, it, and it's, you know, it's, it's troubling him. And so we can resist, you know, reacting when we see people blaspheming God, knowing that God is actively working in their conscience and giving God room to work. But we also have to resist knowing that if we do react, here's what happens is that when you react to somebody who, who's got this, this 
angst in their hearts. If you become angry, militant Christian, then what you do is you free them from just having to deal with themselves and Jesus to now they can put your face on the anger and the angst and the work that God, of conviction that God's doing in their heart, they'll just transfer it to you. And now you become the object of their, of their hatred and, and their vile response and, and so on. Gives them basically an excuse to, to say, the problem is this, this, this hater right here. The problem is this intolerant bigot right here. And, and so they can, they can label you and they can, they can transfer their, their issues to you, which was our third point that, uh, you know, we, or second point, inside every man lies conscience, we can trust in that. And our third point is we have to be ready for God, ready to speak when God tells us to speak, you know, ready for when God calls us to speak. See, if you, if you just jump out and you just become the angry, hey, here we go, and I got to deal with this, and, and, and what will happen is, when this person has their interaction with God, when he's convicting them in, in their heart, if you wait for God's invitation, well, now they're ready. See, before that, if you don't do that, then what happens is you, you become the excuse, you become the source of their anger. And so what we saw last week and what we took note of was what Daniel was doing during this time of, of great blasphemous actions and what he wasn't doing. See, what he was doing was he was faithful to be doing what God had called him to do. What he wasn't doing is he wasn't picketing outside of the palace. He wasn't, you know, doing all the, 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 the public campaign against, hey, you know, stop doing that with the, with the temple vessels. No, he gave God room to work. And, and so when you're ready in that way, because Daniel was an angry protest guy, angry, you know, whatever, I'm you know, not going to turn to the guy foaming at the mouth kind of guy, because he wasn't that guy, but because he was a faithful follower of the Lord, what happened was Belshazzar's grandmother remembered him. Uh, and she remembered him as, as a man with an excellent spirit. She remembered him as someone that was filled with the spirit of the holy God. She remembered him as someone who was knowledgeable. She remembered him as someone who's understanding. She remembered him as somebody who was wise, but she did not remember him as angry, foaming at the mouth, hater, and, and so on. And that's, there's an important distinction. There is a time to speak, but we, it has to be God's invitation and it has to be God's engineering. And so, yeah, we have to be ready for when God calls us to speak. And, and our fourth and final point last week and what we're going to build from this week is that Daniel was known for what he stood for, not for what he stood against. And see, the idea being that the entire world is blind. They're completely blind. And our job is to show them Jesus Christ. And if you're angry, militant Christian, then what's going to happen is chances are they're not going to see Christ. They're going to see your anger and your frustration and your bitterness. And that's not the thing that is going to cause them to turn to you in their hour of need. It's been said people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so there is this idea of, hey, yeah, we got to be ready when it's God's timing to do it. And, and then, you know what, the people in the meantime, they got to know who we stand for, not for who or what we stand against. Now, we pick it up in verse 13. And as we continue now, it says this, then Daniel, when Daniel, after he was faithful, just to wait on God's invitation, okay? And, 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 and it, it, 
the big idea of our message today is when it's time to act, okay? So, so there is a time to act. There is a time to respond. There is a time to speak out. When? At God's invitation. And so then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard of you. Just, just, just the last few minutes, <laughs> but I heard of you nonetheless. I heard of you that the spirit of God is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the uh, interpretation of the thing. And And I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Purple being the symbol of, of royalty uh, and, and, and gold, you know, being, you know, obviously riches and wealth and the status and all of that. And the third ruler in the kingdom, well, remember, Belshazzar's the second in the kingdom because he's a co-regent uh, with, with his father, Nabonidus. And so he doesn't have the, the first position to give or the second position to give. As it turns out, those positions are taken there, Daniel. But I got a third position. You can become the number three ruler in the kingdom. Verse 17, then Daniel answered and he said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. You know what? Stuff it. You can keep it. Uh, Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And this brings us to our next point. I'd have you write it down. It's our fifth point in the series, our first point today. Daniel was not for sale. Daniel was not for sale. You know, in Numbers chapter 22, you you don't have to turn there, you're welcome to, but the armies of Israel there in Numbers chapter 22, they're encamped in the plains of Moab, and they are on a roll. They They are kicking butt and taking names. I mean, they have just mowed through the king of the Amorites. They've mowed through the king of Bashan. And now Moab's next up on the hit parade, man. And they're camping in the, in the plains of Moab. And the king of Moab, Balak, is freaking out. And so what Balak does is he sends messengers to a guy named Balaam. Now, Balaam is a, is a prophet of sorts, of God. And so what, what King uh, Balak knows is that hey, whenever Balaam blesses uh, Israel and their troops, they do great. And so what if I got him to curse their troops uh, and, and then they wouldn't do so great? And so he sends these messengers to Balaam. And basically what he says is, hey, I got a boatload of cash and I will give you just all of this money if you will curse the armies that are, that are encamped, uh, you know, there uh, so, that, so that we can prevail over them. Now, Imagine, put yourself in Balaam's shoes. You are, you're, you're a prophet that, that speaks for God and somebody comes to you and says, dude, I got mad cash. I will write you a check with so many zeros. It'll make your head spin. And all you've got to do is you just have to curse the church of God. You just have to, you, you just have to speak this curse so that, you know, so that God's, so that God's people uh, will, I can, so I can kill them, so I can wipe them out. I mean, it's crazy, right? I mean, the answer you would think is uncategorically no, right? <laughs> so what, is, what does Balaam do? Balaam's like, let me get back to you. 
And he goes to God and he actually says, hey, God, you know, this guy, listen, you know, um, I, this, this would be such a sweet addition to my house, God. Uh, I got my eye on this awesome boat and, and it'd just be amazing. And so he actually goes to God and, and, you know, hey, this guy wants me, you know, to do this. Why does he do that? Well, because he wants God to say yes. How crazy is that? He wants God to say, he wants the dough. He wants the money. And, and God is like, no, that's not happening kind of thing. And, and yet he, he persists. So, and, and so God finally says to Balaam in, in, in exasperation, he's like, fine, go kind of thing. And, and it's kind of, it's not like so much that he wants him to do that. It's more of a test. It's kind of like we do with our kids. I mean, they ask you for something and you're like, no. And then finally you're like, Hey, you know what? You just do whatever. Now, you don't mean for them to go out and do it. You're testing them. And then when they go to do it, you're like, stop. I didn't mean that kind of thing. Well, this is what happens with Balaam. He, he tells him, you know, whatever, go, go if you want. And so he starts to go. Well, God didn't want him to go. He's testing him. So he puts uh, the, the angel of the Lord. This is a, a Christophany, uh, an appearance of, of Jesus there, uh, most likely. And so then this angel of the Lord stands in the way of Balaam as he's riding on his donkey, heading down there. And the donkey sees the angel of the Lord. Balaam is so blinded by sin, he doesn't even see the angel of the Lord. And so the donkey is like, that is not happening. So he stops, you know. Balaam starts beating on his donkey and, and then, you know, the donkey starts to go again and again, the angel of the Lord's there. Finally, he like turns into a wall. I'm not gonna go and like crushes his, him up against the wall. He's mad. He's beating on the donkey. Now, God empowers Balaam or Balaam's donkey to speak at that point. It turns into a cartoon right there and the, and the donkey starts talking to Balaam and saying, you know, have I ever, why, why do you got to beat me like that? Have I ever done anything like this before? I mean, there, there's got to be, you know, I'll be clue in, dude. There's a good reason for why. And, he, and Balaam is so blinded, he, he's talking back to the donkey. No, you stupid donkey, and why do you this and that? And finally, God opens Balaam's eyes, and he sees the angel of the Lord there, you know, drawn up and just ready to, to just knock him dead. So you would think, I mean, come on, if that's you, you would go at that point, like, all right, this is, I, 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 I don't know what I was thinking, forgive me, God. But what's Balaam's response? Balaam's response is, okay, God, well, look, if you, if you don't want me to go, he's still working the angle. He's still hoping God will say, yeah, okay, I don't know what I was thinking, Balaam. Yeah, there's all kinds of dough waiting for you. Yeah, the guy's going to make you rich. Of course you can... Here's the point. When you and I, as followers of the Lord, when, when, when we're going to speak for God, then we can't be for hire. We can't be for sale. We have to say what God tells us to say. That's what we got to do. See, and, you know, the, this is so applicable for, for pastors because, you, you know, you think about, okay, as you pastor a church, my job is to shepherd everybody within the church. And, and I'll just tell you some of the, the, the subtle temptations that come in because what happens is, you know, 
not all y'all tithe. I'll just have you know that. You know, it's been 20% of the people do 80% of the work and give 80% of the money. That's just kind of how it goes. And, uh, and it shouldn't be that way. Um, but, you know, we'd have a church building if everybody tithe, but not everybody does. It's just, in my experience, the last thing that people mature in. So, so typically what happens is you have a person in your church who, who gives, you know, a considerable amount of money towards the church. Now, I don't know who gives what, but, but, you know, pastors have an idea about, you know, who's supporting their ministry. And some people make it blatantly obvious about how they support your ministry because they have an agenda. They basically want to have you in their pocket so that you can sort of sanction and wink at their compromising lifestyle. I'm not saying everybody's like that. I'm just saying that this is kind of one of the things that pastors deal with. And so it's not uncommon for a pastor to have a guy who's in his church, who's bankrolling his church. And, and if you're a shepherd, everybody that you're ministering, ministering to at one point or another needs some sort of counsel, direction, guidance, walking through. And the temptation is for when that person and, and it all hits the fan in their life and, and you have to come alongside and counsel them when there's something that's really hard to say, a lot of pastors at that point are tempted to compromise, They're tempted to be for sale. And just basically wink at the person's sin and, oh, it's okay, and we're just going to leave you in your position and whatever else it might be because they're worried about, you know, the purse strings getting cut off. You can't be for sale. Now you say, okay, okay, great. I get that, and I'm all for that. Don't be for sale, Pastor Ted. You tell people what they got to get. Give them the medicine hard. What's this got to do with me? Here's what's got to do with you. Here's the way that we're all struggling with being for hire at one point or another is that Every one of you, you influence other people. And every single one of us, we have the responsibility, as I prayed today, that as followers of Christ, we're called to be disciples, to be learners, but we're also called to make disciples. That applies to me, that applies to Pastor Cody, it applies to all of our leadership, and it applies to every single one of you. You have the responsibility to make disciples. And what happens is people are in your life, and, and, and they're going through something, and you know from your vantage point that they are in sin and that you need to call them on it. And it's at that moment where you run the risk of sugarcoating it, where you run the risk of, you know what, I just, I just need to, I, I just need to kind of sugarcoat this in their life not really tell them what they need to hear. I'll tell them more what they want to hear because, you know what, they're my friend and it's, it's awkward. See, you got to remember what's going on here. See, we're in this place where Belshazzar, he, God's dealing with him in a severe way. God's given him this thing. His heart is hard. And what he's doing here, he's dealing with his conscience and he's looking for somebody who's going to let him off the hook. He's looking for someone, hey, I want to buy some peace here. Daniel, are you for sale kind of thing? And, and, and what we need to understand is that there are two sides of the coin. There's, there's the one side of the coin we talked about last week, and that is if you play the God squad in people's lives, they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to be ready to listen to you. If you just butt your nose into everybody's business, God squad here, and I, you know, you're in sin, and, uh, you know, here it goes, and you just, if that's your approach, it's not, it, won't be, it won't be fruitful. But there's a time to speak there's the other side of that coin when God says, okay, Daniel, you're on. They've called for you. And there's a time when you're going to be on. 
And if you come onto the scene and the person says, hey, you know, I just, just, I'm going through all this and my conscience is dealing with me. And if you sugarcoat it and you let them off the hook and you don't call sin, sin, then, then you are not doing that person one single favor. The Bible says that faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. See, real friends won't lie to you. They're not going to sugarcoat it. They're going to say what needs to be said. It's so critically important. I remember years ago, I was uh, at the, the, the fire station there, and, and my, my battalion chief had called a battalion meeting. So you have, you know, in a battalion, you've got a number of fire stations. Uh, every single one of those stations is headed by uh, the captain of the, of the station. And then there's an engineer that reports to the captain. And then below the engineer, there's all the firefighters that report, you know, to the engineer. That's kind of the hierarchy. And so the battalion chief had called everybody together and we're all represented there. And he had decided that he was going to change policy. The, the policy was changing was essentially this, that um, in our battalion, all of the paramedics were firefighter rank. They weren't engineers. They weren't captains. Uh, and so uh, 90% of the calls you go on are medical in nature. So 90% of the time, the firefighter was calling the shots, and the captain and the engineers were taking the orders from the firefighter who was saying, get me an airship, get me two ambulances to come in as backup for this guy. We're going to treat this person first. We're going to have to, you know, go here. And, and so the battalion chief said, I don't like that. So I'm going to put the incident commander on any call in charge of, you know, ordering resources, deciding where patients are going to go, all this stuff. And he's telling us all this, and I'm, and I'm sitting there. I've been on the department maybe a year, and I'm thinking, people are going to die over this because you're going to put somebody who has no medical training in a position where they're going to make these decisions that a paramedic needs to be making. You're doing it because, you know, he doesn't have this rank. And nobody's speaking up. And so finally, I mean, you guys met me. So finally, I'm like... <laughs> I'm like, uh, chief? He's like, what do you want, Leavenworth? And I said, um, so I'll use an analogy. It worked for Jesus. So I'm like, <laughs> so I said, uh, I said, you know, chief, I, I had my, my, my kids broke my bathtub last week. The, 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 the water spigot that comes out, they, I don't know if they sat on it, they stood on it, whatever, they broke it. And I had the plumber out. And as he took it off, you know, there's a little pipe that connects in there. And it was PVC, it was a plastic piece. And, um, and so he was going to replace it with another plastic piece. And I told him, I don't want plastic in there because my kids are just going to break that again. Can you put a metal one in there? And the guy said, told me that he didn't have one. Well, I looked and he did have one and it would fit. And I said, what about that one right there? And he said, well, that's galvanized. And see, you've got copper plumbing and they won't work together. I go, will it fit? He says, yeah, it'll fit. Well, what I didn't understand at the time, and I'm explaining this to the chief, was that, you know, there's electrolysis. If you take one different type of metal and you unite it with another one, they fuse together. You can't get them off. Creates a mess down the road. I didn't know any of that. I didn't really care. All I knew was metal. Put it on. Chief interrupts me. He goes, Leavenworth, what you're telling me is that I'm not, because I'm not a paramedic, I'm not qualified to make that decision. Is that what you're telling me? I'm like, yes, sir. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Is I don't care, I'm making the decision, you know, whatever. But, but the point was, nobody was speaking up. And this, this you know, people could have died over that. He ended up getting overruled later on because, you know, he was wrong. Um, but uh, and I can say that because I'm not on, on payroll in the fire department anymore. So, 
Um, great guy, he was just wrong. So the, the point was, somebody needed to speak up, somebody needed to say something. Here's my point for you. People in your life need you to speak up and say something, and God will strategically put you in that position where it's time for you to speak up and say something, and if you don't, because you're worried about insulting them, or you're worried about the friendship, or you're worrying about, you know, they babysit your kids, and you're going to lose your babysitter, whatever it is, you need to be faithful to speak up. You can't be for hire. I want you to remember, this is a divine appointment for Daniel. See, he's not protesting. He's not playing the God squad. He hasn't forced his way in there to say this. He's been invited. It's a divine appointment. He has to be for God and not for sale. Super important. Isaiah 50, verse 4. Now, these, this, is, this is very interesting because this, this is the Messiah speaking through the prophet. So this is Jesus speaking through the prophet Isaiah. It says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. Listen, we are called to be imitators of Jesus, to follow Jesus. And so we take a huge clue from this, that if it's good enough for Jesus to have the tongue of the learned, that he should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. There's, there's a time, the idea of speaking a word in season that is this, that if you speak it out of season, wrong time. So you, there's discernment, there's wisdom that's indicated there. You know, the, the Bible says a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. And it just simply means that when you say the right thing at the right time, it's beautiful. And, and so Jesus says, hey, this is, this is the, what the Lord has given to me. This is what we need to aspire. Lord, give me that. Give me that wisdom. He says, uh, a word in season to him is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. Morning by morning, Lord, what would you have me to do today? It's, you know, just being that connected with the Lord, that's the idea. We move on, verse 18. O king, now he's answering the king. He's, got the, he's, he's on, time to answer. Keep your stuff. Nevertheless, I'm gonna tell you what God has to say. O king, the most high God gave. Now, he's gonna make it a point. He's gonna say that several times. Look, Nebuchadnezzar didn't get, your grandfather didn't get this kingdom by himself. The most high God gave it to him. You don't have what you have because you get it. The most high God gave it to you. So he says, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of, and here it is again, the majesty that he gave him, not because of his greatness, not because of his smarts, not because of his own ability, because of the majesty that God gave him, all people's nations and languages trembled, feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened and in pride, he was depo uh, deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Verse 21, then he was driven from the sons of men his heart was made like the beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with the grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew, here it is again, that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints it over whomever he chooses, but you, his son, and you might just want to circle this entire verse because it's key, but you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although, and maybe you just underlined this portion as well, you knew all this. Hey, you knew better. You knew better. You should have known. You did know, but you did it anyway. 
Verse 23, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand. Take a walk with that this week. Every breath you breathe, God holds in his hand. When you start thinking about how large and in charge you are, what if God just said, now you can't breathe? You'd be like, I'm not large and in charge. You would know it right now. God, who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Give me your attention, if you will. My sixth point, we are responsible for what we know. We are responsible for what we know. And I would just tell you that Belshazzar knew better. Again, Proverbs 29, verse 1, which I think is the perfect scripture to go over this entire chapter, is this. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. And I wonder, I want to ask you a question. I ask you really seriously to consider this question. What has God been warning you about? What is it in your life that you know better? You know better, and yet you're doing it anyway. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus tells a parable. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And there he tells this parable, and uh, the parable basically goes that he gave, he, he, he had 10 minas, and he gave them to 10 of his servants. Now, a minia was 100 days wages. So in modern day dollars, what is that, 20 grand? So he had, he had, he had 10, you know, coins that were worth 20 grand. And he gave them to 10 people. And, and as the, the story goes, the first guy came back and he said, Hey, uh, master, I, I, I took your minia that you gave me and I made 10 more. And, and you know, wow, great. And he's rewarded. And the second guy comes and he says, hey, master, I took your minia and I, and I made five more. Oh, you know, great. He's rewarded. Third guy comes along and he's like, you know what? <clears throat> Here it is. I wrapped it up in a handkerchief. I'm giving it back to you. Here's what he said. I'll put it on the screen. He says, I feared you because you were an austere man. An austere man. Some of you have worked for an austere man. An austere man says, I'm the boss and it's not okay for you to watch YouTube all day. I expect you to actually do something. Or I don't, call me crazy. I'm paying you to work. I'm going to expect that you're going to actually work. You know, that's an austere man. Because you were an austere man, you collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. What's the translation of that? Hey, you know what? You actually expect that I'm your employee and that I'm going to go out and I'm actually going to get some, some work done for you. You expect a return on, on my investment because I work for you. That's the idea. You collect where you did not deposit, you reap where you did not sow. And he said to him, this is, this is the master who is this earthly story of the master, it's the heavenly meaning God. Out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming, I might've collected it with interest? Here's what I want you to hear. We will give an account for the things that God has entrusted to us, church. You're going to give an account for the use of your spiritual gifts, 
whether you were faithful with them or not. You're going to give an account for your time. You're going to give an account for your money and how you spent it. You're going to give an account for the things that you know. You're going to give an account for the things that God's word tells you to do. You're going to give an account for the things that God's word tells you to do that you don't do. Listen, James 4, 17, we don't have it on the screen, but you might want to write it down in your margin. For James 4, 17, here's what it says. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. See, you are responsible for what you know. And that's important because the fact of the matter is, I mean, there are sins of omission, there are sins of commission. Sins of commission, we know. I did this and I shouldn't have. I feel bad. But there's also sins of omission. I should have done this and I didn't do that. That's also sin. And the fact of the matter is, and this is bringing us to our, our seventh point in the series, I think third point here today, that we will be weighed and measured and ultimately judged by God. See, it's not like, you know, there's not going to come a day when you have to give an account for your life. You're responsible for what you know, and God is going to call you into accounts. It's, it's going to happen. Verse 24. Then the fingers, now Daniel's continuing. He's telling them, look, here's what happened. So then the fingers of the hand were sent from him because you know what? You went too far. You knew better. You did it anyway. And God said, everybody out of the pool. The fingers came. Then the hand was writing on the wall and it was written, uh, verse 25, and this is the inscription that was written, many, many, tekel, you farsin. Verse 26, this is the interpretation of each word. Many, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, which is a, a singular form uh, of the word uh, euphorsin. So it, 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 you, know, you read that at first glance, you're like, well, wait a minute, that's not the word. It's the singular form of what is uh, said in the, in the plural on what was written. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Whoopee, it's going to last five hours. Hey, I'm the kingdom. I'm the, I'm the third ruler in the kingdom. You know, you're almost not done with the sentence by the time it doesn't mean anything. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Listen, that very night... He was slain. His breath held in the hands of God. Again, my seventh, my final point. And this is important. We will all be weighed, we will be measured, and we will ultimately be judged by God. You guys remember in the 1988 Olympics who won the 100-meter race? Do you remember the controversy around that? It was Ben Johnson. He was from Canada. And, and at the time, it was a big deal because he ran and he won the 100 meters and he broke the world record and he was a national hero until they did a blood test. See, on the outside, he looked like he was a winner. But when what was on the inside was measured, they found out that he had used illegal steroids and he was, in fact, a loser. The fact is, is that Ben Johnson had to face judgment. And the judgment didn't go so well for him. And the truth is, all of us have to face judgment. 
Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, but after that to judgment. See, there is coming a day, hear me church, there's coming a day when every single one of us is going to have to face judgment. We're going to have to give account of our life to God. Now, if you, if you study the word judgment in, in the Bible, it's interesting. It, uh, it basically, it means a trial or a contest. You know, uh, there's a trial that's, that's, that's happened. There's some sort of a contest that's happened. We're going we're gonna to see, you know, what the truth here is. And, and a lot of people, Judgment Day is a trial or a contest for them. It's, a, it's an agonizing trial. Um, because if I could do a play on the word, it, it's, it, it, I'm probably going to butcher this, but it's crisis, and we always see it as a crisis. But uh, Judgment Day is, is this crisis for people because they kind of see it as this cosmic accounting where their good deeds are weighed against their bad deeds. And they see Judgment Day as, are my good deeds going to outweigh my bad deeds? Am I, am I going to make it there? Am I going to pass the test? You know, and, and, and a lot of people see it that way. There's a, there's a joke that's told about a, a, an HMO uh, CEO. And, uh, you know, anybody got an HMO? Oh, they're, they're brutal, aren't they? And, and so the, this, this CEO, he dies and he goes up and God meets him at, at the gates of heaven. He's like, hey, I got good news and I got bad news. Good news is you're covered. But, you know, you're only authorized to stay two days. So, uh, <laughs> You know, that's, that's the bad news. And, and a lot of people kind of see, see, you know, heaven is, oh, you know, well, how's it going to all pan out? And see, it, it doesn't work that way. The Bible says that, that no amount of good deeds is going to help you. The Bible says if you're not found to be perfect, then, you know, your, your, your end is death. Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Okay, so, so, so that, you know, that's your deeds. And, and it, it ain't gonna, I don't care what good you do, it ain't gonna outweigh that. Now, the gospel's good news, and here's the good news. Yes, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John three sixteen. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. John, or the apostle Paul rather, said, God demonstrates his own love towards us in this. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. The apostle John says it's God's love. It's been perfected among us so that we don't have to fear judgment. And that's the question, judgment day. He says this in John 1, uh, chapter 4, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. What does that mean? It means that he is holy, he is right, he is pure, he is without sin. As he is, so we are in this world through him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Now see, leave that up just for a second. Three times in these two verses, John uses this word perfect. And and we see this word perfect, or a variation of it, like about 120, 117 times in Scripture, in the New Testament. It's, It's a Greek word that means perfect or complete. 
It's the picture of ripened fruit that has just reached its perfection. You ever heard a piece of fruit that's just perfectly ripened? That just melts in your mouth? It's, it's talking about that. This is, you haven't had it, but you have to take my word for it. My mom's cream cheese pie. It's perfect. You know, she gave us the recipe. I think she left some stuff out on purpose because we will make it. And it's like, well, it doesn't taste the same. You know, and my, you know, it's just, my mom listens to my, my messages. Mom, I'd love a cream cheese pie. They're awesome. And so (laughs) they're perfect. And it's important to note when John writes perfected here in, in, in 1 John, he literally wrote teleos, teleos. He wrote, in other words, it means God's love is perfectly perfect. It's completely complete. Now, how has God's love been perfected among us? Perfectly perfect? 2 Corinthians 5, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so because we are perfect in Jesus Christ, the Bible says we can have boldness on the day of judgment. And that's the idea. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about judgment. Every one of you is going to have to face judgment. And you can have boldness on the day of judgment. Now, I, I want to I close zeroing in on this one aspect of this. I really need your attention, okay? Because Jesus spoke of two distinctly separate judgments. All right, two very distinctly separate judgments. He explained the first part of the process in Matthew 25. Again, we'll we'll put on the screen. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides its sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Now, Having separated these two groups, the goats are going to appear before what is called the the great white throne judgment. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, But the sheep are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I'm going to talk to you about the judgment seat of Christ. If you you are here and you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and, and, and you've trusted him for your salvation, well, then... 2 Corinthians says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, this isn't talking about uh, not our, the things that we've done to earn salvation. This is talking about we have salvation because we've trusted Christ for it. So what it's focusing on is what's going to be judged is your works in terms of the motivation for what you've done. And, and we're talking about in terms of reward. First uh, Corinthians chapter th- uh, three says, "If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a, wor- a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet so as through fire. See what happens is some of our works, having gone through the fire, will come out refined as gold and, and silver and precious stones. But other the, the works that go through, they're like wood, hay, and stubble, and they're going to burn up." And so as a Christian, you know, maybe, you know, I'm saved and I've given my life to the Lord and I decide that I'm going to plant a church, but you know what, I'm really really egotistical and self-centered and I'm really more interested in sort of building, you know, my own kind of empire sort of attitude. A lot of pastors are like that. And, and, And are they saved? Yes. Do they have a hope in heaven? Yes. Is a lot of the fruit from their ministry going to be to their account? No, it's going to be burned up. Their reward in heaven is going to be that. They're going to be in the smoking section in heaven. They'll be in, but you know, no reward. And, and we have this beautiful picture in the book of Revelation where, where uh, the guys are, are, are worshiping the Lord and they, and they cast their, their, their crowns at the feet of the Lord. 
And, and that's, 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 that's this beautiful picture of, so what's our, I'm in heaven. What more reward is there in, than that? Well, how about having these, this, this crown that you've received for the things that you've done and being able to give that to the Lord in worship? You ever been somewhere where gifts are being exchanged and you don't have a gift to give? It, it, you, conversely, have you ever given a gift where you're just like, I get to give this and it feels so good to give. And you worship the Lord and you want to have something to give to him. And that's the picture. That's the idea. So the, so the judgment that awaits Christians, it's distinctly different. But I, I want you to pay attention here. This is super important. Because for those that haven't really trusted Jesus Christ for their salvation, for those people, their end is what's called the great white throne judgment. And, and I want to close looking at this. If you just turn real quickly to Revelation chapter 20, this will be two minutes. And it's well worth it. We're going to start at verse 11 in Revelation chapter 20. We're talking about the great white throne judgment. This is the destination for everyone who hasn't fully trusted Christ and Christ alone for their hope of salvation. And I want these words to... to, to Just sink into your heart. Then I saw, this is the Apostle John, he's writing this vision that God has given to him. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose faith, the face, the earth and the heavens fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. Underline that sentence. The dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books verse 13 the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one just in case you didn't get it the first time each one according to his works will you note with me they are not judged according to Jesus work They're judged according to their works. And it goes on to say, Then death and Hades, verse 14, were cast cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Again, Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed unto man. Once to die, then to face judgment. You will die a first death. All of us will. You will die a physical death. Ain't none of us getting out alive. You will die a physical death, and it's appointed. Nothing you can do to change that. The question is, will you die a second death or not? And verse 15, here's the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. This is the spiritual death. Here's what I want you to hear because we're going to close on this and you need to hear it. There is that part within us. And I I, I gave this closing exhortation in first service and, and we had dozens and dozens of people respond to surrender their life to the Lordship of Christ. And I pray the same thing happens here in this second service. If there is a part of you that believes today that because of what you do, that you're, that's going to somehow secure a right standing with God, then you are not trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You might be doing it, you know, sort of cerebrally, sort of in, 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 in intellectual, you know, philosophy. 
but you're not really, you haven't really done that in your heart. You're still trusting in yourselves. You know, if I'm good, God's happy with me. If I'm bad, God's not, God's displeased with me. And, and if my good works that way, my bad works, you know, then I die, you know, saving some little kid out of burning building, then, then okay, I get to go to heaven because, you know, there's, no. You either trust in your hope in heaven because Jesus Christ loves you, died on the cross for your sin in your place, and rose again on the third day to conquer sin and death, and you are saved because of his work, or you're not saved at all. If you're trusting in your works to be right with God, you need to surrender that today. Are your works important? Yes, not for salvation, from salvation. When you fully surrender your life to the Lord, then you begin a lifelong process of sanctification where he's going to to mold and shape and grow and mature you. You will have things to repent of, certainly. But your right standing with God has got to be entirely dependent on the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins in your place, that he suffered, died, was buried, that he rose again on the third day. And if there's any part of you whatsoever that believes that your works factor into it, you need to surrender that today to the Lord and make darn good sure that you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Amen?